Thank you. Happy New Year, everybody. Some of you actually believe that. Some of you don't. Well, say some of you actually believe that. Some of you don't. That's okay. That's all right. As with every New Year sermon for the New Year, I have a couple New Year's jokes. That's more like it. Here's a New Year's resolution for the elderly. God grant me the senility to forget the people I never liked anyway, the good fortune to run into the ones that I do, and the eyesight to tell the difference. It's a mum's New Year's joke. I had a talk with the kids at dinner about New Year's resolutions, but I guess my six-year-old doesn't quite grasp the concept because she went around the table and told each of us what she thinks we should do better. You guys, I think she might be onto something. It's my pleasure to welcome, hey, I like that. This is the first time I've seen the graphics, sorry. I've been at ADD this morning. It's my privilege to introduce a new series for the new year. Now, every new year, if you've been, if you've been brought up in a church, you've gone to church, every new year it seems like there's always a new year's resolution, new year, new year, new you, be a better you in 2022, 2023, 2024, you name it. So it's kind of one of those things where you just show up in church on New Year's and everyone's kind of excited. Maybe everyone's a bit, I'll call it the, everyone's a bit full from the holidays. Everyone's had a good time. Everyone's been enjoyed. And we just kind of get in and it's right. It's January. It's time to batten down the hatches. It's time to uh, go out to, Renew that gym membership that you, you maybe forgot about. Maybe you, haven't, maybe you never canceled it. Maybe it's been going on for, for months and, and you're getting ready to go. Maybe it's, it's time to listen to more uh, motivational videos or Instagram reels or TikToks, whatever it is that you think happens. Every new year, we kind of run into this same cycle. And I felt challenged this year because every year we seem to come to this place and we go, it's a clean slate. It's a clean place. We're starting again new. Life is good. Everything's great. And kind of like the joke of the elderly, we're a bit senile if we really think that. Because you think about it, there's nothing different between 2023 and 2024 if we just keep doing the same thing we've always done. If we keep doing the same stuff, if nothing changes in us. And so this this new series we're going to is Thriving, Not Just Surviving. If you came out this morning, I, I, I got a text on my phone going, Mike, we need grit out here because it's an ice rink. And it was, if you've driven up here, there was fog everywhere in the air. It's cold. It's January. The January blues are real, people. <laughs> it's not just the waistbands that are a bit tighter. <laughs> the purse strings are a bit tighter. It's dark. It's cold. It's not very enjoyable. And yet, this is how we kick off our new year every year. So we try to boost ourselves, motivate ourselves, then we go out and we go, man, this is depressing. And this thought kind of came to us as we were preparing and thinking about, Lord, what do you want to teach us this new year, to kick off this new year? And it's this, it's that so many of us have lived our Christian lives in this cycle of just surviving. All we want to do is just survive. Survive to the next month for the next paycheck. Maybe you're surviving the, the, the next week. Maybe you're just surviving the next day. But how many of us know that God's called us to thrive, not just survive? 
Jesus said, I have come to give life and life abundantly, life overflowing. There's an opportunity for us this morning, and it starts today, to live a life that is abundant and overflowing. Now, last year, I signed up very stupidly for a thing called a rampage run. Anybody know what Rampage Run is? Yeah. Some of you are laughing already. I had always had, so I had, on, my, on my phone and on, my, on, on Instagram and, and on my Facebook, I always kept getting these things about these, these, mar- these uh, big like 5K mud runs in the States, they call them Spartan runs. There's the, these runs where you just, you, you just feel so awesome and they have this, this pumping music, they're all excited, people are like, ah, they got the, the, face, the, the, the face paint on and, and they're all running as a group and they're climbing over logs and they're, they're jumping into to water and they're, they're, they're going and, and crawling on, on their knees, hands and knees uh, over barbed wire and it just looked epic. I'm not kidding, barbed wire, not joking. And it sounded like such a good idea. So a bunch of us decided, you know what, we're going to go do this. And, and we get up, we get to the, the, the starting line, and, and all the folks say, we, we pay our money, we get ready to go. We're all psyched up and ready to go. Yeah, this is going to be it. We're so excited. And, and the guys that are coming up and standing the thing, they start, okay, right, now it's time for a warm-up. No one said anything about a warm-up. I was just ready to go. There was none of this time. So we're doing this warm-up. We're jumping up and down. We're doing all this stuff. This warm-up lasted for 40 minutes. By the end of the warm-up, I'm going, oh, my word, how am I going to get anywhere? And he goes, right, is everybody ready? And all the hardcores are like, yeah. And then me, I'm going, why did I do this? And said, go. And the first thing that we did is we ran this massive hill all the way up and down. I'll tell you what, by the, by the first time, the first obstacle, I was done. And I feel like a lot of times, I was thinking about that as we were prepping this. A lot of times we hit into this new year and we get ready to take on the world and be the biggest, the best you. And we trip up before we even get started. And I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you this year. Maybe we need to do something differently. What if it looks a bit different? What if we don't just do what we've always been doing? What if we actually look and see what the Lord has for us? Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear different talks from different people coming up, and, and, and we're going to be investigating this premise. What does it take to thrive, to live a thriving life, to live a life that is thriving in God's kingdom? What does it take? What are the tools that we need? What are the attitudes that we need to carry? What is the heart posture we need to be in? And I'll tell you what, it's a lot harder than a 45-minute warm-up workout. But I think it's something that the Lord's called us to. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you start? Why don't you turn to Genesis 4? I don't usually do this. When I, when I prep talks normally, I, I kind of like to take people on a journey with me and not, not explain anything, just kind of walk through with them. But this new year, new you, all of that stuff, I'm going to do something different for this talk. So I'm going to give you a bit of a roadmap we're, t- we're going to be talking about. Today, before, so we get all the depressing sighs, we're talking about forgiveness. Oh, the sarcastic yays. Woohoo, forgiveness, my favorite topic. 
we're going to be talking about forgiveness. And we're going to be looking at a, por- at a story that I find is just so moving in the Old Testament. We're going to come and we're going to chat and have a look and see what Jesus talks about this topic. And then at the end, well, we'll get to the end. But there's a question that I want to pose to you this morning. The new year, 2024, is this. It's a two-part question. Do you need to forgive somebody? And if so, what are you waiting for? Do you need to forgive somebody? And if so, what are you waiting for? If you pull it, put Genesis 4, put your, kind of, your finger just there for a minute. I'll, I'll kind of give you the whirlwind tour up to this point. Many of us know, if you've been growing, growing up at church, you understand. If you've been a journey especially, we talk about Genesis a lot. It seems to be like the place we always start at. It's the starting point. It's kind of what happens. And we, we know what happens, right? God creates the world, makes it good, puts us in it, and we mess it up royally. That's, that's getting to this point. We find that Adam and Eve, they disobey God, they, they eat of the fruit, sin and rejection creeps into the world, and literally the next generation, we see just how much of a catastrophe this whole Eden project becomes, because you have the story of Cain and Abel, how many of you know the story of Cain and Abel? We have our first murder in the family, just after the first generation. And if you follow those, those lines of Cain and Abel, what happens? Well, well, Cain, we all know, God puts a curse on Cain, marks him, doesn't, we'll, we'll say he marks him, sends Cain out into the wilderness to go off, and no harm will come to him, but he will always be somebody who is going in the wilderness. And, and if we follow the line of Cain, we see that Cain marries, settles down, has a family, and this family line grows. And if you ever read the Old Testament, lineages are important. Finding and understanding the starting point and coming down to where we're at is important because we see that, that Cain, generation after generation after generation, until we get to the point where Cain is the great, great, great grandfather of this boy named Lamech. Everyone say Lamech. I would say it's a strong name, but probably not for the right reasons. And we get to this passage, and it says this. You read it with me. Genesis 4, 23 through 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. What a horrific commentary on the state of the world. Here's a man. Things have gotten so bad. He's declaring to his two wives. How pompous and how arrogant. I killed a man for wounding me. If Cain gets her revenge, I get it 77 times that. And it's funny because Lamech, we don't hear much about it. That's literally all we see. Let's set set out a bit. There's another line that I want us to kind of follow. Many of you know, how many of you know of the man named Seth? 
Seth was the child that was born to Adam and Eve after Cain had, after Cain had killed Abel. And Seth's line, if we follow it through for a bit longer, we, we go past this line. We see many of you know that the greatest hits, there's Noah, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob. And we get to this man named Joseph. How many of you know the story of Joseph? Only three of you. We are in serious trouble. We are in serious trouble. Because the the story of Joseph is not just one chapter. It's not just two chapters. The story of Joseph is massive. And so if I were to come and just preach on the story of Joseph alone, we'd be here till next Sunday. (laughs) Don't test me. Right. And so how we're going to approach this is I want us to look at the story of Joseph, but I want us to take this in snapshots because there's so many things to explore. Here's your homework, right? Begin to read the story of Joseph just as it is with no premise on anything. Pretend you've never read it before. Open it up and read it. It will mess with you. It will absolutely mess with you. And here is Joseph. And what do we know about Joseph? Well, Joseph was his father's favorite. He was daddy's favorite. Anyone ever watched the movie? This is really going to date me. Joseph in the Coat of Many Colors, the cartoon, the only good version with the singing and all of that. Right? No one, there's two people again who've watched this. So some people are excited, some people aren't. But Joseph's a 17 year old. He's given this coat of many colors, which we kind of just go past, right? Because, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's, he's Joseph's favorite. You have to understand something. In that culture, every boy was given a coat. So it wasn't that Joseph just got a coat with a lot of colors in it. No, no, no. What they're trying to tell you is that Joseph actually got a second coat. He wasn't the firstborn, but he was daddy's favorite. He got a second coat. He got a double portion. Why? Because he's daddy's favorite. And here we see Joseph. It says he delivered bad reports to his brothers. So he's a bit of a snitch. I know a lot of you, if you've watched the story of Joseph, we paint him to be this hero. Like, let's be honest. If you read the story of Joseph, there's parts of it I'm like, he's a bit of a toe rag. Can I say that? Like, he's a wee bit of a toe rag. He's a bit arrogant. He's a bit, he's a bit too much. And he starts having these dreams and he tells these brothers of these dreams like, like they don't need any other more reason to hate him. And we all know the story. Joseph is sent out by his father to go find the brothers. And what happens? They put him in a hole. Yes. They put him in a hole. Genesis 37, 18 through 28. They saw him from afar, and before he came to them, they conspired him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Ooh. I just imagine Eddie Cook. Ooh. (laughs) Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then will we say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to him, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. 
Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Shmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Well, that was very kind of Judah. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. 20 shekels of silver would have been a common um, value for an average male slave at the time. So we see the story, they come up, you thought your family was bad. They throw Joseph into a pit, they sell him off into slavery, and they forget about him. And and in this moment, you kind of start to feel sorry for this Joseph character. Let's be honest. Yeah, he's a bit of a toe rag. But that, that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read these stories, I kind of like to put myself in them and go, what would this feel like? What could Joseph possibly be feeling? He shows up to his brothers. He's stripped of his clothes. He's thrown into a pit, and then he's sold off to, to Egypt to be a slave. How do you think he'd feel? He doesn't know of the plot. He doesn't know of anything. It's not fair to say he expected this. Potentially feelings of anger. How dare they? How dare they throw me away from my family? They better hope I don't get out. Maybe feelings of sadness, of despair. Maybe eventually feelings of pity. Why me? Here I am in this pit. Why me? And here's another thought kind of came to me as reading this. Could Joseph not sit there and go, surely my father will come for me. Surely my dad, because I'm his favorite. Surely my father would come for me. Imagine, imagine being in that place and taken to Egypt to go where? Into another pit. And we know the story. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna read all through this. But we get to this place where a family does something horrific. They make a, a right good mess of it. And Joseph is given a choice. He doesn't realize it at the time but he's being set up to make one of the biggest choices that will affect him and his family and for generations. Will he take on the attitude in the heart of Lamech? I will have my revenge on those people who've thrown me out and cast me out of this family. Or is there an alternative? If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So what is Joseph's response? It's just my daughter agreeing with me, don't worry. <laughs> we know the story. We're going to fast forward for the sake of time. But the tables turn. 
In the span of about 13 years, Joseph finds himself at 30 years of age as second in command to Pharaoh to make these massive choices. The Lord is truly with him. If you read the story, it's not a fluke. It's not just that Joseph is just gifted. The Lord is with him. It is so clear in the text. And God positions Joseph into this place where he's got just about everything he could ever need or want. He's got authority. He's got power. But what doesn't he have? He doesn't have his family. And as I was preparing this, I I thought about this. Because we all know the story. Joseph's brothers, they show up. They don't know it's Joseph, but they show up because there's a famine in the land. And Joseph has come face to face with the very men that threw him away. I wonder this morning, in your life, has the Lord ever, or would the Lord be this cruel, to put the very people in your path again that have hurt you? Would he do such a thing? I think he would. And in this moment, Joseph has a choice. Will I enact revenge? What shall I do? And Joseph is conflicted. If you read the story, Joseph doesn't have an exact answer. He doesn't know what to do. In fact, multiple times, it's, it's this back and forth, this dance, if you will, of testing and trying out these brothers and seeing what they are because they don't know who he is. At one point in Genesis 42, Joseph is saying, I want you, I'm gonna hold one of the brothers here, but I want you to bring the youngest brother. I want you to bring back the youngest brother. The, the brothers of Joseph didn't bring the whole family. They just brought a certain group. But Joseph wants to see the younger brother. This younger brother was probably the brother that was closest to Joseph because it was from this, his same mother. And this is what Reuben said. It said, Reuben answered them, did I not tell you to not sin against the boy, but you did not listen? This is Reuben regretting his decision with, with Joseph, in front of Joseph. So now there, there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then Joseph turned away from them and wept, and returned to them and spoke to them. He took Simon from them and bound them before their eyes. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes again. Here's this moment again, face to face with the very people who hurt him in a horrific way. Will I enact my revenge? Or what will I do? And he's conflicted. Surely we can't relate to this story. This isn't us. We get on with everybody. No one's ever hurt us. No one's ever hurt us this way especially not those who are closest to us. They would never hurt us. And here's Joseph. What will I do? They all come together. He gets them around in a room after about a couple back and forths. And it all comes to a head. And I can imagine as you're reading this story, you're sitting as somebody on the seats, just as an audience, just holding your breath going, what will Joseph do? Will he continue this cycle 
this cycle that is hell-bent on revenge because they deserve it, because the way they treated me wasn't right, and they should be punished. Or will he lay it down? Genesis 45, 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone get out of here for me. So no one stayed with him but his brothers. And he wept aloud, so loud the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourself, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither, neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of this house and the ruler over all the earth. Look at this. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After this, his brothers talked to them. You'll be hard pressed to find a more moving story. But if we take a step back, there's something that's so much bigger here. And I think it's actually a message that the Lord has for us this new year. If you want to live in a place where you are thriving, not just surviving, you need to understand that it was forgiveness that moved God's plan forward in the life of Joseph and the life of his family and in the life of you and me. If you think about this, if Joseph doesn't forgive these brothers then his family doesn't come into Egypt. It doesn't grow and it doesn't become the people of Israel, the people that God has called to bless the nations, whose line Jesus comes through. The more I read this story, the more I come to this conclusion. Joseph has horrific things happen to him. There's no doubting that. And he has absolutely no control over anything that happens in his life. With the exception of one thing. And that's this. Will he forgive his brothers? Will he forgive his family? Will he choose to forgive? If you still have your Bibles, why don't you jump with me to Matthew 18, 21. How's everyone doing? 
Nothing like a heavy hitting sermon to kick off your January. I was prepping this and Rihanna leaned over to me. He's like, don't depress them too much. <laughs> Matthew 18, 21. And you'll understand this in a moment as soon as you read this. Then Peter came up to him. Peter came up to Jesus. And he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I did not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? There's only two places in scripture where that's used 77 times. And Jesus continues, he just leaves it there. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. At this point, everyone's laughing because 10,000 talents is an insurmountable debt. It's like saying a gazillion pounds. There's, it's, there's no way that anyone would ever be able to pay that much debt. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had. But the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. It's quite funny, isn't it? That the servant would tell the king, he's desperate. But sometimes when we're desperate, we say really silly things. Because the king knows he can never pay this back. But what does the king do? Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of his debts. But here's the catch. When that same servant found out, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. This is about 20 years wage. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. I want to pause there for a second. Because unforgiveness makes us do really, really stupid things. And one stupid thing that unforgiveness does is it creates this debt that no one can ever pay. And actually, it doesn't just choke the person, they're choking themselves. Because here's this servant, he's thrown into prison, how would he ever get his money back? He wouldn't. But the servant would be satisfied with that. And it's a fallacy to think that if we can live our lives as Christians in unforgiveness, that we're ever able to actually move forward. Because we're forever choked and tied to the same prison imprisonment sentence that we've given to other people. This isn't about whether you were wronged or not. This is whether you're willing to let it go. This isn't to negate that anything bad has ever happened to you. But it's your choice, like Joseph, to decide what will you do with it. Can I have the band come up? When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his, his master delivered him to the jailers. This word jailers is also um, the word torture. Until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
Jesus doesn't pull punches. The impact of that story, that small little story is also lost on us when we don't understand the context is that Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of heaven, the culture on his way to the cross. He's looking at them and he's saying, you you want to follow this kingdom. You want to thrive in this kingdom. You want to be a part of this kingdom. Then you better understand that you too had a debt that you couldn't pay but I will forgive you of it. So you're free. But the moment that you decide to take that freedom and try to imprison somebody else, you yourself have become a prisoner. And I know that it's a tough message to start off January 2024. But I feel like the Lord is on this and is speaking to people in this place. And he's saying the reason that nothing has changed for you is because you still are holding on to that unforgiveness in your heart. No matter what you're doing, Jesus is saying, lay it down. It's a commandment and it's an order. We don't get the right to hold on to it anymore. Now, I want to caveat really quickly with this because I, I'm very acutely aware that there are people in this place, statistically speaking, there are people here that have been victims of abuse, of hurt, of pain that most people wouldn't understand. Jesus is not saying that you don't have healthy boundaries. Jesus is not saying that you become a doormat Jesus is not saying that you stay in a cycle of abuse. In fact, if you read the chapter before that, he lays it out very clearly. But we need to understand this as a church because we've got this wrong for such a long time. We've associated forgiveness and reconciliation as the exact same thing, but they're not. Because reconciliation takes two people. Forgiveness just takes one. Let me say that again. Reconciliation takes two people. And if it happens, it is a miracle and it is a beautiful thing. And we see that in the story of Joseph. But forgiveness takes one person. There's a story in closing. I'll close with this. At the age of 10... Eva Moses Kaur and her twin sister Miriam were transported to Auschwitz. Their doctor, Joseph Mengele, used the two girls along with other twins for medical experiments. And in 2013, Eva Moses wrote this. On January 27, 1945, four days before my 11th birthday, Auschwitz was liberated by the Soviet army. I returned to my village in Romania to find that no one from my family other than Miriam had survived. Forty years passed before I spoke to Miriam about our experiences. She died in 1993 from that long-term effect of Mengele's experiments. That year, I was invited to lecture to some doctors in Boston and was asked if I could bring a Nazi doctor with me. I thought it was a mad request until I remembered that once that I'd once been in a documentary which had also featured a Dr. Hans Munich from Auschwitz who had known Mengele. 
I contacted him in Germany and agreed to meet with him for a videotaped interview. On my way to meet this Nazi doctor, I was so scared, but when I arrived at his home, he treated me with the utmost respect. I asked him if he'd seen the gas chambers and he said this was a nightmare he dealt with with every day of his life. I was surprised that Nazis had nightmares too and asked him if he would come with me to Auschwitz to sign a document at the ruins of the gas chambers and he agreed. In my desperate effort to find a meaningful thank you gift for Munich, for Munich I, re, I, re, I searched the stores and my heart for months. Then the idea of a forgiveness letter came to my mind. I knew it would be a meaningful gift for him, but even more important, it became a gift to myself. And I realized I was not a hopeless, powerless victim. When I asked a friend to check my spelling, she challenged me to forgive Mengele too. And at first I was adamant that I could never do that, but with time I realized that now it was I who had the power, the power to forgive. It was my right to use it. No one could take it away. On January 27th, 1995, at the, 15, at the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, I stood by the ruins of the gas chambers with my children next to Dr. Munich and his children and grandchildren. Dr. Munich signed his document about the operation of the gas chambers while I read my document of forgiveness and signed it. As I did that, I felt a burden of pain lift from me. I was no longer in the grip of hate. I was finally free. The day I forgave the Nazis, I also privately forgave my parents, whom I had hated all my life for not having saved me from Auschwitz. Children expecting their parents to protect them, mine couldn't. And when I forgave myself for hating my parents, I believe with every fiber of my being that every human being has the right to live without the pain of the past. For most people, there is a big obstacle to forgiveness because society expects revenge. We need to honor and remember our victims, but I always wonder if my dead loved ones would want me to live with pain and anger until the end of my life. Some survivors do not want to let go of the pain. They call me a traitor and accuse me of speaking in their name. I've never done that. Forgiveness is as personal as chemotherapy. I do it for myself. It's really hard to read that without tears coming from your eyes. And I feel like the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is touching on something in hearts this morning. And I want to honor that. Another fallacy is that you need to give time before you can forgive. It's rubbish. The Hebrews understood this this idea and Jesus talks about it. He says, when you forgive your brothers from your heart, Hebrews didn't have a word for mind or brain. This is how they thought about decisions. When you're acting out of your heart, it's your will, it's your emotions, it's everything. But what you're doing, you're actually stepping forward and making a decision and your feelings follow it. Sometimes people have to sit there and say, no, but do I have to really, really mean it? I remember as a kid, maybe, maybe if you brought up in a Christian home, you understand this. As a kid, my brother and I fought all the time. And my mom said, you say you're sorry. You forgive him. And it was always really effective, as you can imagine. I forgive you. But this morning, 
in order for us to thrive and not just survive. We need to let go. And so I am asking, if you're on the prayer team, I want you to come and stand. And this is what I'm gonna have the worship team do. The worship team is gonna lead us kind of in a a softer kind of worship type of thing. Because in in this moment, I, I wanna allow opportunity. Why not make today the first Sunday of 2024 to be the day that you release, the day that you give up the debt, the day that you forgive the people that have hurt you the most and begin to walk that journey of restoration and begin to walk that journey of thriving and not just surviving. Eva Kaur wrote those two letters to her family and they're documented. I, I don't find it necessarily appropriate at this point to read them, but if you ever want to read them, you can look them up yourself. She wrote these documents and very personally in front of everyone forgave her parents for the brokenness they caused. The people that hurt us the most are always the ones that are closest to us. And whether we realize it or not, so many times we hold on to unforgiveness and it's been there for so long, it's just kind of part of the furniture. Why not make today the the day where you just finally go and let it go? I release it. Can I tell you, it won't change them, but it will change you. May not change the situation. It won't change what happened, but it will change you. And you will walk in a freedom that you have never experienced. Suddenly, January doesn't look too blue any longer. Well, maybe sometimes. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to close this in prayer. The worship team is going to sing. And the people that are up here are intentionally up here as people that you can trust and lead you through this, through forgiveness. You don't need to do this alone. And we want to allow the opportunity for that to happen. And so Jesus, in this moment, in the first Sunday back in 2024, Lord, we ask that you would give us the courage. Holy Spirit, that you would give us the power to forgive. That same power that you had, that you have bestowed on to us, that you have given us the, the power and the authority to forgive for us. In 2024, let us walk a year where we forgive our debts and walk in freedom knowing that you forgave our debts. That your blood cost so much and that forgiveness costs so much. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.